your single family home can now be a 10 story development and it exponentially increases the value of your land. Here's a story that's becoming more and more common in certain neighborhoods in Miami. I have an aunt who lives in Little Haiti, has owned her home, it's probably paid off, and she tells me she gets about three or four letters a month, right? So if you're a homeowner, especially if you're elderly, you don't really know and you're you're being enticed by private investors, developers, you know, a nice dollar to, to move and sell your home. So you're not really thinking. And the thing is that we don't understand the value of our land. Developers looking to buy up homes in mostly black working class communities. A group of Haitian uh, business owners have been in the community for 10, 15, 20 years. They've been paying their rent, but this new developer, who rightfully now owns the development, he's not accepting their rent because he has bigger plans. So you're talking about people who rely on their business being there. They're staples in the community. Everyone knows about them, but the reality is that uh, a developer is coming in and he has bigger plans. So what do you do? This is The Takeaway. I'm Tanzina Vega, broadcasting all this week from WLRN in Miami. And that's the question we're answering today. What do you do when your community suddenly becomes the most desired by developers confronting sea level rise? Is climate gentrification real? Uh, it is real. It is real. Little Haiti is at the intersection of climate gentrification, you know, and immigration. Residents say climate gentrification is already happening. But to understand why developers started swooping into neighborhoods like Little Haiti and Liberty City, we have to go back to where we began the week in Miami Beach. The city is right at sea level, and flooding with the semi-annual king tides became so destructive that city officials spent big money to fix it. Part of the solution is this elaborate pumping system that sucks any standing water out from the street and spits it into the ocean. This looks normal, but this thing here goes into a very active pump. That's Hal Wanless again, the geologist from the University of Miami, who we heard from earlier this week. He took us around Miami Beach to show us some of the infrastructure the city had installed to handle rising tides and sea levels. And so these are meant to do what? To pump water? Out? Any water that's, that comes visible here will immediately go down a drain and disappear. That's the idea. So that's no flooding up to the knee? That's the idea. Well, you're saying that's the idea. I'm wondering, does it mean that it well, works? Well, it or failed twice last summer, once during Inez and once during a very heavy rain. So what happens when it fails? Well, everything floods. You can see the businesses across the street are quite a bit down from the new street level. That's right. It's not only drains and pumps. Miami Beach has also raised some of their roads. Look carefully and you'll see stairs or ramps that take you a few feet below street level to all the restaurants and shops. That six-foot wall around your condo complex, well, now it's only three feet above street level. But what I wanted to show you on the left up here is after they raised the road, they put in all these stairways going down, what is that, three feet or four feet? That's amazing. Down into the entrances to these, these condominiums. I should mention here that this part of Miami Beach is relatively wealthy, full of high-rise condos with striking views of the bay and perfectly manicured gardens. The price tag for all this? Half a billion dollars. That's billion with a B. And that's just for this small section of the neighborhood. This doesn't seem like enough at all. Well, and the question is, is half a billion dollars for about 30 streets north-south along the coast, maybe three blocks inland? That's a very small part of Miami Beach. 
There are a lot of areas on into the main part of Miami Beach that flood regularly. There is going to come a time when home values will diminish, probably rapidly, and tax base will diminish probably rapidly. And then it's sort of over for doing these kind of things. And Hal says when it's over and the sea levels continue to rise, all these people living in Miami Beach, the surrounding islands, low-lying areas in Miami-Dade County, they're all going to have to go somewhere else. And they've already got their eyes set on where that might be. I spent an afternoon in Little Haiti, just a few miles away from the newly fortified Miami Beach. At Northeast 59 Terrace, music was playing as Chef Emmanuel served up quinoa, bean stew, and pickled vegetables from his food stall via vegan. But there are also boarded up businesses that have been bought out by developers and an organic chicken market that sits across the street from a traditional Haitian restaurant. Several purple signs advertise Magic City, an expansive complex of apartments and shops that could totally transform the neighborhood. But some people are skeptical. Marlene Bastien, founder and executive director of FAM, Family Action Network Movement, formerly known as Haitian Women of Miami. We met Marlene at the Little Haiti Cultural Complex, a community center in the heart of Little Haiti. FAM helps its members with things like immigration issues and social services. We're also fighting against uh, gentrification. We are, we are fighting against the displacement, the force displacement and separation of our families because Little Haiti is at the intersection of climate gentrification, you know, and immigration. Because here's the thing, right? Climate change or no climate change, Little Haiti has already been gentrifying. And the fact is, it's one of the highest points in Miami, and that's what makes it even more attractive to developers. Uh, it is real. It is real because the, the prices of real estates are going sky high because suddenly Little Haiti, which used to be this blighted and depressed area, uh, is uh, believed to be, uh, you know, uh, situated 12 feet above sea level and then it becomes a uh, prized land right now. And then so the developers are really getting the prices, you know, beyond limit and which makes it impossible for people to, who live, who've lived in the area for years, for, you know, for years and years to stay. That's what it is. And it is real. It is real. Marlene called what's happening psychological warfare. Very strong language to say the least, but to make her point, she told us a story about this man. He couldn't sleep. He was so scared. Uh, he was, the, the two buildings, you know, on his left and right were bought, were purchased, and then people were haunting him, knocking on his door, even on Sundays, and then he became so scared, and he came to our office and said uh, he was afraid to sleep, that he was going to sell, and we convinced him not to sell. So a few, a couple of months later, I saw him, I said, what happened? I, I haven't seen you, you were supposed to come back. I said, Marlon, I just, my, I just could not sleep. I was afraid for my family, so I had to sell. This is not an uncommon story. I don't know if all stories are that emotional for some of the homeowners, but for many of these people, these are individuals who don't speak English fluently and, and almost feel like they're being bullied out. WLRN reporter Nadej Green reports on social justice issues here in the region, and she knows this community and this story very well. Nadej, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. We just described something that sounds predatory. 
How expansive is this happening? How much is this happening? So we only know anecdotally right now, uh, you know, some of the homeowners in the area at community meetings or at a recent protest even over commercial spaces uh, where Haitian-owned businesses are being pushed out have recounted their own personal stories saying that, you know, people have approached me and they want me to sell my house. And after I say no, you expect no to be no and you move on. But it becomes almost like like harassment. It's like having a telemarketer show up at your door almost. And how much of this is really tied to climate change? Or is that sort of, you know, the excuse that people are using to buy up more properties? I think it's a mix. I think around Little Haiti right now, uh, Little Haiti is close to the urban core. The urban core has been developed in a way that it has not been before. So you're seeing like a reverse flight now from the suburbs back into center city. And so it is in a location that people want to live in. But also climate change has some to do with it. Obviously, if you're a developer, if you're someone who is looking at the trends, right? Little Haiti sits above sea level, high above sea level. And so you're going to take that into consideration, you know, as you consider new development projects, because here in South Florida, that will impact your insurance costs. That could even impact whether or not you get financing for a project because climate change is real and we're seeing the effects of that. Tell us about Magic City, because we went to Little Haiti yesterday and saw these signs and, you know, properties that have been bought, these big land plots that were open. What is Magic City? What's behind that? Um, It is a new development project that is coming up in Little Haiti. um, And there is another multi-million dollar development project happening west, also on Archdiocese side of a former Catholic school. And all of these projects are looked at in the community as it's going to change the landscape of the community. It's going to be sort of like what Midtown looks like now, right, with high rises and mixed use and commercial spaces. And all of that means change for the neighborhood. And what that also means is, you know, also with new development comes higher cost of living, um, higher rent costs, whether in a commercial space or residential is going to go up and has been going up in these communities. And obviously, um, we can't talk about gentrification without talking about what we just said, income, money. When we were at Biscayne Bay, looking at the pumps and looking at all these fancy and very expensive expensive solutions or temporary solutions that have been put in. I kept thinking, what happens if you're low income? What happens right now if a hurricane hits and you're a low income South Floridian? So I think here in South Florida, especially when we talk about climate change, much of the conversation is around sea level rise. But in communities that are not impacted by flooding in that same way, you don't really hear the conversation about resiliency uh, being brought into these communities. And it does not mean that they're not impacted in a catastrophic event. Poverty and all of those things become more stark. So after Hurricane Irma, for example, People thought, okay, you guys survived this. There was not major physical damage, right, um, here in South Florida. But in Miami specifically, in the poorer communities, if you were without power for two weeks, if you weren't able to go to work for a week and a half, that had detrimental impact because most of our jobs here are very low income. They're hospitality-based jobs. So if you're a housekeeper, and I spoke to several housekeepers, janitors, and you're an hourly worker and you're off from work for a week and a half because of a hurricane, that's a week and a half paycheck that you're not going to get. And so because people didn't work for two weeks, within three months they were facing eviction because you could not make that up. 
Mm-hmm. And we're going to hear from Fabiola uh, in a minute, a young Haitian-American entrepreneur who's using real estate investment to keep her community intact. What have you seen that other communities are doing to fight gentrification? Because it seems like it's an unwinnable battle, frankly. And, and people are saying it like this. What One of the phrases I heard out in the community is that we're not trying to fight gentrification. We're trying to survive it because it's going to happen. There is no undoing this, right? It's happening. And so in Little Havana, for example, you know, there's a business group that is forming called Que Pasa, where they are trying to stave off the Brickle effect because they're so close to Brickle. People now call parts of Little Havana Brickle West. But with that Brickle West moniker comes Brickle West prices, right? And so you're seeing the renters and people who own businesses there trying to form a collective to speak out and to implore policymakers to help them out. And is there any political will to help the community maintain and or manage this type of situation? Because frankly, I mean, we here in New York City, we've been gentrified to, you know, within an inch of our lives. And there's a lot of talk, but I don't see a lot of action. I think that's comparable here. I think it depends on who you ask. If you ask the politicians, they might say yes. But when you go out into the community, the frustration is that you're not actually seeing that in real life. You're not seeing that play out for your day-to-day life. Um, What has started happening is businesses, as they shutter, are calling press conferences just so people know why they're gone uh, because they don't want them to know, think that they just disappeared. And they're like, I was here and I want you guys to remember I was here, but I can no longer afford the rising rent costs. And it becomes this conversation over what is the role of government and private enterprise um, and whether or not you can actually create policy and whether or not that policy would even pass, right? But we have not seen that on that level yet. Nadej Green is the social justice reporter at WLRN. Nadej, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. And Little Haiti's not the only neighborhood that's changing. Just ask Fabiola Florenville. Look how quiet and peaceful it looks, but you also see the police. So you already know that (laughs) this is a different type of neighborhood. Florenville is CEO of Blueprint Creative Group and a real estate investor. Takeaway producers Dana Roberson and Isabel Angel took a tour of the Liberty City neighborhood with her. So as you can see, the type of housing, like three, four unit type quadplexes that they are already starting to build on. I didn't realize that. Okay, because I know that they started to knock some of them down. Florenville sees gentrification all around her, but she's trying to focus on solutions to the issues threatening her neighborhood. She's part of an organization called the Miami Millennial Investment Firm. Its mission? To invest in black communities like Liberty City and Little Haiti before outside developers come in. It's a a group of millennials um, who came together Half of us didn't even know each other. And we decided that instead of, you know, just investing individually as some of us were, myself included, let's create the story of impact. You know, we hear gentrification all the time. Who's really talking about solutions? So we didn't create something. You know, it's been done forever. All we did was just pull together our our resources and say, let's do it together. Let's concentrate in a community that we know needs to be preserved culturally, economically as well. And so, I mean, it's business at the end of the day. So we're not saying that we're doing this as a nonprofit. So there's a money component to it, but we're going to be smart and strategic about it. But doing what? Like, what are you guys doing? So investing? What, yeah. So what we did, we identified properties within Liberty City. That was our target community. So we 
we want to create that that critical mass. So it's not just internally, but for us to be peer influencers to other millennials, other young investors to be inspired to, to want to replicate the same model. So we pulled together our money. We came up with a little under $150,000 in cash and we purchased a couple of properties, um, started off that way. We renovated them and we had a very serious conversation with housing agencies here that's, you know, we know that legally you can't, you know, restrict your houses to certain buyers, but we made it very clear that we have a mission. You know, we're here looking for cultural preservation as well. Um, we know that there's a pipeline of buyers who want to be able to own their own homes. They want that same American dream that everyone has, but they can't afford to live in Miami. That's the reality. Miami is just not affordable for the average person. And so we're pricing our homes under that $200,000 mark so that we can get that first time home buyer, whether it's a single mom, a young couple, a young professional who cannot purchase a typical home, but is willing to live in the Liberty City and a little Haiti. So the challenge is that oftentimes, you know, we hear of crime, we hear of communities being blighted. And so we get scared of our own communities, right? And so we run away, but then investors see it totally different. They'll look at the diamond in the rough and say, it's within five miles of downtown. You know, we can probably change zoning codes. It's on higher ground. We know in 10 years, climate change and gentrification is going to be a big um, topic. Let's set our sights there. So private investment, you can't stop, right? We need some level of private investment, but let's also do some type of social impact investing as well. And so that's what we did. But how do you do that when, I mean, let's be honest, the forces of private investment, the forces of gentrification, the forces that are saying, you know what, we're going to take this and rezone this, you know, without really a lot of people understanding what's happening. How do you compete with developers and investors at that level? I mean, can you realistically do that? Well, no, you can't compete against cash, right? But you can rally the community around you, right? So we were creating this story. First of all, know the value of your land, right? We live in Liberty City where everyone is saying it's bad. No, we can change our community the way we want it to change. We can bring in retail. We can bring in commercial. Keep your homes. Invest in your homes. Actually, move back into the community. And there's a pocket within Liberty City where you still have the the original homeowners. It's that old black money, right? They've been there for a while. Lawyers, judges, teachers, and they're well organized. So when you talk about the uh, Hadley Park Association, even though crime may be happening all the way around them and investments you know Hadley do not touch Hadley right because they respect their organized rules to their section and they protect their investment we need to replicate that right so it's educational so what we did when we came together we started to create this theme around the value of Liberty City the value of Overtown the value of Little Haiti North Miami Miami Gardens all black cities Miami Gardens is having the Super Bowl um, in 2020 because that's where Hard Rock Stadium is the Miami Tennis Open is moving from Key Biscayne downtown to Miami Gardens in all black city, the largest black city south of Atlanta. We need to protect our investment now because the face of it is going to change as investment comes in. And we can't stop investment. But what we can do is participate. And so that was our, our story. Let's participate in it. So they can do what they want to do, but let's also get involved and participate. What does someone do? Someone who might be in foreclosure and they get a letter and they say, hey, you know, would you be interested in selling this home? Like, how do you get that message out to people, number one? And number two, what should homeowners do if they feel that they're being pressured? So as an example, what I tell my 
aunt, if you ever feel like you need to sell the home, sell it to us, sell it to me. I mean, I have plenty of cousins. We're all educated. We're all doing well. Sell it to us. Keep it in the family for one. But for others, it's educational. So with climate change, gentrification being the the hot topic right now, there's been a lot of um, community organizations that's been rallying the Haitian community to let them know, you know, they're, they're making it culturally sensitive to them, but they're educating them as well you know this is little haiti we need to keep it little haiti just went through a name change right which is significant because it wasn't an official name for the area it was just coined little haiti as the migration of haitians came in and you know flourished the community so we need to value that but just even from a community level when we came together to create our investment even in my personal investments i'm investing right now in jacksonville in historic springfield which is a historic black community that's also going through gentrification um, what we try to do is pair ourselves with first-time home buyers. So the county and, and various agencies grant up to $80,000 in first-time home buyer loans. So we go directly to those agencies where we know they have a pipeline of buyers, usually from these communities. And I say it explicitly, I want someone who knows the community, who is comfortable with the community, who is probably a product of the community. And generally, they're going to be black. And so that's how you can tailor it. If we really want to say, let's take care of the people, there are ways to do it legally, right? We know organizations who already have members of the community as part of their pipeline, right? So if you want to develop in Little Haiti and Liberty City, but you also want to be conscious about your development, there is Little Haiti Housing CDC, where you can find buyers who who are ready and willing. They've gone through the program. They have the funding. There's no, no homes for them. And that's a problem. So you have a pipeline of buyers, but no homes because nothing's affordable. And so when we're doing um, um, redevelopment in our communities, we have to think about affordability as well. So everyone's talking about affordable housing, but then you have that pocket who's left out. So we need to think about mixed income housing. We need to think about more inclusive communities. Um, how do we get most of Miami, not the lower bottom, but the middle as well, uh, to participate in what's happening? Fabiola Florenville, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Fabiola Florenville is CEO of Blueprint Creative Group. Thank you.